everyone. You are listening to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I am the Reverend Mary Vano, and I'm excited to speak with our guest host today. Sarah Catherine Gutierrez is a certified financial planner and the founder of Aptus Financial. It was my pleasure to get to know Sarah Catherine when we worked together on the board of the House of Prayer, so I can tell you that she is an impressive person. Not only did she start her own business, she's also a wife and a mother of three young kids, and she just published a book. Sarah Crathen, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. It is a huge honor to be on your podcast. I mean, I've always thought you were cool, but this definitely (laughs) brings up the cool factor by like at least a dozen more notches. You have a podcast. Wow. I just feel like that's a powerful compliment that you thought I was cool. (laughs) I'm not sure very many people would say that, but I think that you are so cool. So we have a mutual admiration society. So Sarah Catherine, let's get to know you a little bit first. It seems to me that truly by any measure, you've really accomplished quite a lot in your life. Tell us about that journey. How did you get here? I definitely believe that my life is unusual and it's followed a lot of different paths. Some successful, some not successful, but there is definitely a very strong spiritual string that attaches my life together. And as many of your guests as well, it basically just is, you know, I think the thread of it all is a passion for social justice. My time outside of college started in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps which the Jesuits are known for a passion for social justice. And I was a job developer for the homeless out in Arizona and did that work for three years. And it gave me a passion for what it is really like to work with people who have nothing. It's an empathy that I think a lot of people don't experience until you see just what that is like for people day in and day out. And I know I didn't have it until I was in it for so long. So I took that passion for social justice to get a master's in public policy, and I did that at the Harvard Kennedy School, and then decided to come back to Arkansas. And my dream was to be able to get involved in a local level on a lot of these issues. And so I started my career actually as a stock analyst, and I worked doing security and defense technology equity analysis you know, when you become a stock picker, so you're the one that's like, hey, I think you should buy, sell, or hold a stock. It's a real interesting thing to start that in 2007. And then we all know what happened in 2008. Mm -hmm. So imagine being a stock picker where that is your entire career and you watch everything that you said yes to, obviously, Crater. And so it's obviously a very humbling experience to do that. But at the same time, what I think is more interesting about the story is being a female in that world. So the world of stock picking is very male dominated, not only for stock pickers, but also in the mutual funds that you sell your opinions to in general. So I had a lot of imposter syndrome in there and there's a lot of jargon. So when I was in this world, the story is really interesting that at the same time that I was saving money for the first time, I had never done that in my life. I was also seeing a lot of these impediments to myself getting involved in that world of kind of bigger finance and then... And seeing the barriers in the personal finance side too, because in 08, 09, sure, the stock market crashed, but I'll tell you, there is a much bigger problem. And that was that a lot of people lost their homes. We still don't talk about that. I mean, there are people who are still financially ruined from 08, 09. 
if we just measure the 50% of us that are lucky enough to own stocks, if we just measure the recovery based from 0809 based on the stock market, we think everything's fine. But I can tell you right now that there are still people that are trying to bail out their lives from that period. It was a very serious, significant problem. And so it was just a number of these confounding elements that led me to saying like, why is it that all these people are still getting conflicted advice? Like, why is the only place for financial advice from people selling you something? Mm -hmm. And I believe we need mortgage lenders. I think we need real estate agents. I believe we need all of those things. I believe that we should have a very clear delineation between someone who is selling you something and someone who is giving you objective advice. That's what I decided in this crazy period of time where resumes were really stacking for my job because all these people had lost big jobs at Bank of America, Lehman, you know, all those financial institutions that were damaged. Those people were knocking on the door of my very job saying, hey, I'll take it and I'll work more hours for less money. Like it was an amazing thing to think like, okay, I have this idea for a new business where you give non-conflicted advice and walking away from really significant job security. But it was a little bit of that social justice passion and flame that I just can't ignore. And that's what led me to starting my business in 2011 called Aptus Financial. There was a lot of luck involved in how I made it. I mean, definitely failed several times because in a world where financial advice is given in a way that seems like it's free to then offer mm -hmm. financial advice that people have to pay for, I didn't really think about that when I was starting the business. So that was a real big hurdle, but a lot of transparency gains were made in the financial system from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Department of Labor started putting transparency standards out there with the fiduciary rule and just a lot of luck in the timing of starting a business that is kind of dedicated to giving lots of just average everyday people financial advice with no conflicts of interest. It just by luck had a chance of taking off during this time. And so, yeah, we've got a team of six people we're about to hire next week. We've been growing and it just feels really validating to the model that we started back in 2011. I really appreciate that because when we were in our 20s, my husband and I, a couple of times we were sold some things that we unwittingly thought was good advice. It really wasn't good advice for us. <laughs> so I'm glad that you are offering that service where you are not selling anything other than your good advice and your knowledge. Now, your book is titled, But First Save 10. You call it Lady Splaining Money, which I love. And it is particularly written to help women get started. You're teaching women not only the importance of saving for retirement and other needs, but you're also giving them the know-how to get it done. Now I'm about 20 years old, too old to be in your audience, but even I felt like I learned a lot from reading it. And one thing that I appreciated about the book is that the point that you made about the power of open conversation. Why do you think it's so important to be able to talk about money? Because most of our parents told us not to. <laughs> Why should we be talking about money? Our parents didn't talk to us specifically about saving, but they did teach us about money, even if they didn't mean to, because we were taught to consume. 
they pick you up from school, you maybe go to the grocery store, you go with them to buy the first car, you go with them to buy the house. We learn consumption our entire lives. Then we have, as a society, interestingly made it taboo to talk about using money in healthy ways. Think about this right now. If you're on Facebook or Instagram, could you post a picture right now of a brand new car that you just bought off the lot? Mary's shaking her head. You could post that. Mm -hmm. Now, could you post the image of your savings rate into your retirement plan? No. No. That is the environment we have created. So what I am trying to do with the book is not be another financial book where, you know, people get financial wisdom and if it speaks to them and they feel so moved, then they go take these action steps. I'm just so excited that that was your main takeaway to say, I am going to save 10% or whatever we talk about in the book that resonates or build my first emergency fund or get on a cash flow management system. At my next dinner club with my girlfriends, I'm going to tell them about it. I'm going to tell them what I did. I'm going to have that conversation. And I think there are safe ways we can have a conversation. So I think it should be perfectly normal for us to be able to say on social media, woohoo, I just increased my savings rate to 10%. I have not told anybody how much money I make. I have not given anybody a window into my personal balance sheet, how much I'm worth. I have literally just said, I am putting this percentage of my money into retirement. And then it becomes a very interesting form of peer pressure, much like posting <laughs> a picture of a car or a house mm -hmm. on Facebook. The book lands in a movement that I co-founded last year called Save 10. So Save 10% is the goal of the book. If you save 10% from your 20s the rest of your life, statistically, you should be able to retire. That's the whole point of the book. So my idea was, let's start a movement where we get a bunch of people artificially talking about it. So we have these Save 10 badges where people can post once a year on 1010, post a badge of where they are in the savings movement and to show that, yes, I'm saving 10%. We also allow for people who are using their 10% to pay off debt or things like that mm -hmm. to be included. That's the absolute next step. And unlike buying a car or getting a job or things that are very much zero sum games, if you think about it, if you think about saving for retirement, if we all save for retirement, we will all collectively be better off. Why wouldn't we like want to tell the world and hope that everybody joins with us? And that's kind of the point of the Save 10 movement that the book comes into. these financial goals are worth celebrating, more so than the purchase of a new car, maybe. So I think that's wonderful. It is also true. I think part of the reason that we often are afraid to talk about money is because money is something that on a regular basis might be something we're really stressed about, really anxious about. And this pandemic is causing a lot of problems, but one of those problems is financial and economic stress. Or perhaps it might be more accurate to say that the pandemic is exposing just how financially fragile we are. We are living in one of the richest nations of the world. So why are we so fragile? And what should we be learning in this moment? So the 2016 Fed study that a lot of people cite is that half of Americans couldn't get their hands on $400 in an emergency. 
imagine that going into a pandemic. And I can tell you, so I've sit across from people and I talk to hundreds of people about money every year. And the biggest enemy we have besides silence, which silence is the lack of a reminder that we need to have an emergency fund, that we need to be saving for retirement. Silence allows inertia. And so the inertia is, is that everything worked out yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. Therefore, I'm going to keep going because it works out. Nobody expects an emergency to happen. That's by its default what an emergency is. And so I think that we don't plan for emergencies largely because we don't talk about them. We don't talk about how to prepare for them. We haven't made it quote unquote cool to have a savings account. Why don't we make that the coolest thing ever to have a savings account? So this pandemic caught a lot of people flat footed. I am not a stranger to the pandemic emergency. So I own my own company and my husband owns his own business. He owns a salsa dancing nightclub. When we were doing our SWOT analysis, strengths, weeks, opportunities, and threats, global pandemic was not one of the threats that we listed <laughs> down in that quadrant. We found ourselves open with a booming crowd in February and locking the doors in March for who knows how long. It is an unbelievable feeling as a business owner to watch all your hopes and dreams. My husband built that dance floor by hand wood by wood piece, right? It is crushing. I could not imagine if we didn't have an emergency fund because we would have lost everything. And we are already starting to see businesses that can't make it. And I think about personal finances, people who are one missed paycheck away from real financial ruin, because not only is there not an emergency savings, but there's also crushing credit card debt when people hear me speak, I'm always really adamant that this is not from buying lattes and shoots, right? That's not why people are in credit card debt. The number one reason people are in credit card debt is healthcare. So that's the number one cause of bankruptcy. Wow. And it's because we had a changeover to high deductible healthcare plans about a decade ago. It's a process that's been happening. And so when people are on the hook for their first you know, $3,000 of medical expenses, if you lose a healthcare lottery and you make $45,000 a year, anyone doing the math on that budget realizes mm -hmm. that's unaffordable. So we don't have the safety nets that we need to be building. A lot of people aren't even aware of when they're getting a premium reduction that they have got to be putting that money into savings and no one tells you that. It is an unbelievable position that a lot of people are in. We as Americans are gonna have to look very closely at our personal finances. Much to the detriment of the U.S. economy, it looks like instead of spending many of the stimulus that Americans were supposed to do, right? Because mm -hmm. we we're supposed to be stimulating the economy with our tax refunds, with the PPP, unemployment checks, with the COVID distributions. Mm -hmm. With all of that, we were supposed to be spending. And we instead ended the second quarter with a 23% savings rate as a country. That tells me is that people who are still employed are paying attention, it is a wake-up call. And so my argument to people in that position who are still employed, still have the money, as a person who is in the position of trying to make an emergency fund last for a year, a year and a half, like how long are we gonna try to keep this thing open before we can make money again, right? As someone who wants to kiss and hug my emergency fund right now, 
I can say, you do not know when an emergency is going to happen. Don't just put it into a savings account right now. You need to figure out how you can lock in that savings, as I talk about in the book, through automation. So if someone puts a deposit into a savings account, you saved. But if someone puts a deposit into a savings account and then goes to their payroll department and says, hey, I want you to automate this. I want you to put $150 every single month into this savings account. I will call you a saver. That's what we need to do. We've got to lock in this country-wide awareness of emergency funds. Not just do it once, but make it a habit, a lifestyle part of our identity, be a saver. The danger of undersaving and overspending, from my perspective, it's not just the obvious fact that we may not have enough money when we need it. To me, there's also a mental and spiritual toll incurred when we are not managing our finances well. And I can also speak from experience here. When my husband and I were young and just starting out, we were married when we were 22. I still had seminary ahead of me, graduated from seminary, went straight into having our first child, and then went straight into our first house. And where that landed us was a significant amount of debt. That seemed actually pretty normal. I mean, none of those lenders discouraged us from using our credit card or from buying the house. We just sort of thought that regular debt payments was a part of reality for most people. Maybe we were right about that or maybe we were wrong, but nobody was talking about it. So we just assumed that that was what you were supposed to do. I think the cue for me that something was not right about the way we were handling money. One thing, it was just stressful. But the other thing was the big point of anxiety came in the annual pledge campaign for church. And that was because I really wanted to give. But with all that debt, I didn't feel like we could give much. And so we would give, we would make a pledge as a sign of our commitment to the church. But it didn't feel good because I knew that it was a tiny percentage of our income. In fact, we were spending more money on tips at restaurants than (laughs) our pledge to church. And that was like the big sign to me, wait a second, this is not what money is supposed to feel like. It doesn't align with who we are. This doesn't align with what I believe to be true about our commitment to God and to our church and to our community. It doesn't feel good to give less than what we're capable of giving. So that was the big cue that maybe there's a different way to do this. (laughs) So then, yes, we read a book that gave us some advice about getting out of debt, and we went after it with a vengeance. And within a couple of years, we had paid off student loans, credit card, a car, and we were debt-free other than our mortgage. And at the same time, we were able to increase our giving until we were tithing. Now, I am somebody who has had a lot of moments with God, I will say, moments where I've felt the touch of God in my life, but I don't think I can over-dramatize this. This was a conversion experience for us. This was God showing us that we could be generous to our community. It felt free to be out from under debt and not be controlled by money, but rather the other way around, that we had all the choices at our disposal. Some of those choices were hard, but they were ours to make. It was just tremendously life-giving for us. 
And I'm so glad that we figured out a few things. Now we still have some room for improvement, but we did figure out a few things. And most importantly, we figured out how to align our spending with our identity. I don't even know what to say. That story, I mean, I have head to toe chills. That is the story. That is everything. I just cannot tell you enough the generosity in you opening up about that experience because I think that probably the majority of people are experiencing what you just described. And we silently suffer because we think we're the only ones. And it's people like you that are willing to raise their hand and say, look, this is what we did. This is what it was like. And here's what we did to get out of it. That's how we can fix this because, you know, I've had people go through what you just described and I want to get to the alignment of values because I just think that's the most powerful piece in it. But even just like what you were describing as you were feeling, you think of it like the boiling frog. It's like lenders can give you increasing amounts of money and you just think it's just one more payment, one more small thing. And then you get kind of slowly burning in this pot of water until you finally feel it. And that's when a lot of people finally kind of take the reins or do a lot more dramatic things. But then there's a lot of people that get used to it. So I had this one client who was very much in that, like, so 10 years of just kind of in and out of really crushing credit card debt that she would kind of pay down a little bit and then just bring it back and didn't seem that concerned about it. And then something changed and she started kind of slowly paying it down. And then it, I don't know if it happened to you this way. It kind of gained its own momentum. Oh, it's so satisfying when you see that zero balance. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, the first debt payment's the hardest one. Because it's the one that doesn't feel like it's making a difference. Like, you don't know if you can trust yourself. Like, am I going to really follow through? Like, there's a lot of reasons like why it's the first payment that's the hardest. And then the second one's a little easier. And the third one's a little easier because you start reaping, seeing the benefits of it in this negative compounding. Like you're seeing your interest payments are going down. Like it's a really satisfying event. So she was feeling that momentum and then became debt free and is living what we call a fire lifestyle. So she saves 30% of her income now. Like it's an amazing story. So very similar to yours. And one time she said this, I'm wondering if you resonate with this. She said, SC, there is not one thing that I could think of right now in the whole world that anyone could give me that I would trade for living one day in that life. Because you don't think of it as particularly stressful, like all the time, but it's when you get on the other side that you're like, wow, this is so much better. And so the alignment, though, of values, your statement of, I realize we are paying more in tips than we were in giving. There's this notion in economics called opportunity costs. Our money at its core, when we spend it, it's at the cost of something. And so for some people, it's time. And so that's why there's a big movement for people who want to retire early or be able to be financially independent so they can work part-time because they want to buy their time back. I find that really interesting and great. It's not my necessarily most passionate reason for saving. For me, the opportunity cost of spending is the opportunity cost of generosity because I do feel called to be able to make a splash during my short time here on the planet. 
And a lot of times it does require resources. And that is exactly what moves me. And I think a lot of people look at managing their money or look at people who save and they think that there's only one reason to save. And that is to just accumulate wealth, never spend, never enjoy in the moment, and then die on a heap of mound of money. And if anyone's (laughs) listening to that, that is not the goal. I mean, that might be some people's goals, but I think that that does not have to be your goal. And so I think aligning where your money is going and knowing your costs and trade-offs of your most precious reason for your resources, which is generosity. I mean, that is profound. That is truly like finding financial, I don't know. Well, that's (laughs) joy, maybe. will tell you that I'm not shy about asking them to give. (laughs) Maybe some of them would prefer I become a little bit more so, but this is why I will encourage people to give and to give generously because I think that generosity is spiritually transformative. And I don't want people to feel shame about it. I don't want people to feel guilt about it. And part of the way that we get to the point where we can both give generously without that shame and without that resentment is by getting our financial business in order. We took that major step 12 years ago, and there are still some ways that we could improve our financial habits. Particularly in my household, we haven't been so good at saving for those near-term expenses. We've got our retirement kind of in hand, or we're happy with that. We still don't have debt on our credit cards or anything, but the roof is going to need replacing at some point, (laughs) and we need to get ready for that. So the combination of this world crisis and reading your book has made me want to make some improvements. We are right now, we decided last month to take advantage of the low interest rates. So we're refinancing our home right now. I'm also going to implement your cash flow system because that was different than any I'd read before. Very intriguing. So we've got an appointment with the bank this week. So Sarah Catherine, do you have any suggestions for what people can be doing right now to reduce that financial anxiety and increase their savings, increase their well-being? Yes. And before I give specific advice, I like to always give the caveat that I believe that most people can take my book and take the savings advice I'm about to give and implement it. I believe that that is available to most people. But as you and I spoke about in preparation for this podcast, there are people who do not make a living wage. And so I never, ever want my advice to cause extra anxiety on top of what people already have in the way of judgment. When I've seen these budgets, I do retirement plans where people make very little money and I honor what they are able to do, but it is pretty tough to live in America making minimum wage. I do think that there are some fundamental cash flow management steps. I do think that they are different that I talk about in the book, but the funny thing is, is that they go back to the beginning of time on how people had to budget. And so the way you budgeted when you didn't have credit cards, when everything was in the cash system is you did not have the ability to use short-term credit or different maneuvers to be able to pay for things short-term. 
you had to save for them. I talk in the book about saving for retirement, saving for emergency funds, paying down debt. Those are the big things that need to be done. But I believe that everyone needs to take this next step. And it's going to sound crazy, but it is not crazy. But that is to set up a series of savings accounts and use them for near-term purchases. So if you think about, you know, you talked about owning a home. So a lot of people buy a home and they don't estimate in the cost of home ownership, the cost, like you said, of replacing a roof or replacing the air conditioner or my refrigerator. Like on top of all this going down, Mm -hmm. my refrigerator and my washing machine broke. I mean, it's like, come on COVID, (laughs) (laughs) right? But you know that those are going to happen. And so for us, when the refrigerator broke last week... I had to be more annoyed that I had to spend extra time picking out what to buy and that I wasn't prepared for that than to have the added pressure of, now where am I going to find that money? Or what financing are we going to get? Because we have a savings account that's called Home Repair Reserve, and we put 1% of the value of our home. We divide that by 12, so we get on a monthly basis. We have that monthly amount auto-transferred from our checking account into our home repair reserve savings account every single month. Money just goes there. And then when something breaks, all we have to do is pull that money back over the $1,200 or so for the refrigerator, pull that over into our checking account and then go buy the thing. And we do this for everything. So I do it for travel. Think about gift giving at Christmas. It was totally normal to have Christmas accounts. It's the only account It's so funny to me. It is a thing to have a Christmas account. You've heard of this, right? Banks have them. They're called a Christmas account. Why don't we have that for everything? So I have Christmas account. It's really all gifts, like birthdays, all that. So when something comes up, pull the money over. There are a variety of things that are interesting because I am passionate about the human brain and how irrational we are when it comes to money that hunter-gatherer brain that we have that makes us want to spend now. It's not our fault that our brains are wired like this, so we shouldn't beat ourselves up about it, but we do have to protect ourselves. And so for me, what's important is that when I save ahead for something, the science tells me that I'm going to be a little less liberal in what I spend on something than if I buy it first on credit and pay for it later. That refrigerator, I knew all those deposits that took to Mm -hmm. go buy that refrigerator. And so while a robotic refrigerator that would tell me my (laughs) grocery list and what's missing sure sounds good, I am not spending $5,000 on a refrigerator. So what I love about saving ahead for things, that's all you're doing is you're saving ahead. You save Mm -hmm. ahead and then you go buy the thing is that first of all, it prevents you from a budget that goes beyond your means. Because when you're saving ahead for these big ticket items that you know are coming, but they're rare and you don't know when, then you can falsely live a different budget. So that's first of all why I like it. And second of all why I like it is we tend to spend less when we save ahead for things. When we use a credit card, you know, we spend 30% more, all things being equal, using a credit card than a debit card. But then the final thing, why would you have, like, I have seven savings accounts. Why would I have that many savings accounts? Well, our brains do this thing called mental accounting. So anyone listening to this will absolutely know what I'm talking about. Tax refund time. What Mm -hmm. happens? You file your taxes and they say to you, you've got $1,500 coming to you. And you know it's coming in three to six weeks. So what do you start doing in your head? You start spending it in your head. Now, do you spend it on the same thing in your head? Like day one of the tax refund, you're spending it on a new bike. Seven days later, something breaks in the house. You're like, oh good, thank goodness I have that tax refund coming. 
And then seven days later, there's a big fundraiser. And you're like, oh, thank goodness. I've got this. So we've spent that tax refund five times by the time it arrives. <laughs> Uh And then the thing arrives and we just go on a shopping spree. This is what we know happens in its mental accounting. So our brains will not mentally account for our money accurately. It's just not going to do it. So what we can do is say, okay, brain, I get you. (laughs) I'm going to call you on that. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to make these different savings accounts. And then there's no questioning of when I need a new refrigerator, I'm not spending down money that I have associated with, you know, if I had all my accounts combined, let's say it was a total of $40,000, right? I might be more likely to go spend $5,000 on a smart fridge. But because I have literally showed my brain, oh, no, no this pile of money is for your next vacation. I don't want to take away from that. This pile of money is for Christmas. We know that's coming, right? It is a way of just keeps us from doing that robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of thing Mm because we know where that money is supposed to be going. Now, it doesn't completely solve it, but I believe in this notion of choice architecture and libertarian paternalism. I love the work of Nudge and all the behavioral scientists. And these are the workarounds that they say typically can work. We're nudging our brains to do the right thing. They're not always going to do the right thing, but at least we're setting ourselves up for success. And at least in theory, if we've got those accounts, we're going to put money in those accounts. We'll be better prepared. That's where automation comes. So let's mm-hmm. say someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, my retirement is fully funding. There's nothing needs to be done there. I have my emergency fund. This could be the next step is, oh, you know, I don't have those accounts. Set up those accounts, figure out how much you want to fund in them, and then automate the savings transfers from your checking account to those savings accounts. You're never going to stop those transfers. Just watch it grow. But if you have to decide to transfer the money... Mm-mm-mm-mm. it's not going to happen because it's going to be November and you're like, ah, oh, this Christmas season, maybe we won't make the transfer this month. Oh, January, gosh, December was really tough. Got to pay off that yeah. credit. We play games with ourselves. So the automation is another ingenious workaround to our brain wiring. You might appreciate this being the mother of young children. When my kids were little, we decided on an allowance system based on their age. But the problem was with me actually paying them. <laughs> Mom is apparently not a very good employer. (laughs) So (laughs) in order to regulate their allowance, years ago, we started savings accounts for them. And so I automate their allowance to go to their accounts. (laughs) So that that way it actually happens. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've never heard of anyone doing it, but it's brilliant because I think that when people ask me, like, what's the best way to teach kids about money? Should you pay them allowance? Should you pay them for chores? My answer is yes. But you just have to be consistent. And that's Mm -hmm. where people go wrong is they don't consistently follow through. And so kids then are just getting reinforced a message of just not being on top of money, basically. It's hard to be consistent in parenting, especially (laughs) when you're juggling all of that. That's a topic for another day. But yeah, that is one way that I've managed that is my kids get direct deposit. So smart. (laughs) One thing else I noticed in your book is the word joy. Several times you use the word joy about money management. And I'm not sure that very many people other than financial planners experience joy when they're talking about money. So explain to us regular folk, what is the connection, do you think, between joy and money? Is there joy to be had there? When people align their money and their values, their money and their time, I believe it makes people more joyful. I don't know if it's happy 
but mm-hmm. I do feel that it's a sense of just joy. And it's a daily feeling that I feel. Sometimes my husband will look up at the dinner table. Everyone knows he's notoriously a major introvert. Like he laughs about wanting to go by a farm in the middle of nowhere. Like he's <laughs> very much introverted. And sometimes he'll just look up and he'll just say, we are just so lucky. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot, but we feel like we're lucky we found each other because we're not trying to do any keeping up with the Joneses. I would be lying if I said it was completely absent because I think we're mm-hmm. all influenced by others, sure. but we're so careful and we're so careful to just live our own lives with our own goals. It was our value to be able to own our own time during the day as business owners with our children, even though my husband is completely out of work because we've always lived on less than one pay anyway, it wasn't stressful to us. And so he's enjoying his time with the kids and saying, I would have paid for this time if I knew it would be this good. I do associate living below your means And that deep financial security, I think it goes hand in hand with feelings of joy, which is why I just really, really encourage anyone who's on the sidelines, because you have to make commitment to this. It really is better on the other side. And you can get there no matter what your income. I have seen people against odds. Like I'm not even sure I would have been able to do it. It is amazing when people decide, deep down decide, like you did. There's that moment where you're like, we're going to do this. You said, basically, people have to figure out what they are personally willing to do because society will tell you you're crazy. People are going to have to make some very difficult choices that society will probably tell them are crazy. Mm -hmm. And whatever those choices are. I've seen people downsize homes. I've seen families go from two cars to one car. I've seen people downsize cars to a car that has 250,000 miles on it. I've seen people make what society would say from the outside almost feels like they're giving up their power. But what they don't realize is when you make those choices, they are temporary sometimes. I mean, sometimes people are like, wow, that's not bad at all. But when they are part of this overall plan and you get to see the satisfaction of getting closer and closer and closer to that debt-free goal or that emergency fund goal or starting that business, there's just no physical thing that could replace it. In your book, I think you refer to this as the joy of missing out, as opposed to, yes, as opposed to the fear of missing out so often sort of compels us to spend beyond our means, but you've turned that into the joy of missing out, which I think is the reward of living within your means, having some savings to protect us during tough times and to know that your future is secure, and then to be able to accept without envy a smaller home or an older car, because you know that those possessions do not define you. That is definitely a form of joy. There's also a great book called, if you remember The Millionaire Next Door, I think it was written in the 80s. The next book written by one of the author's daughters, The Next Millionaire Next Door, describes this difference between this kind of FOMO and JOMO in a really strong way. 
And so this is a very research heavy book. What happens is when we spend to other people's desires, that FOMO spending, we can get a very strong dopamine hit and feel kind of the power and security of letting people perceive us a certain way, but it's fleeting. It goes Mm -hmm. away and it leaves us oftentimes worse off and the feeling has diminishing returns. A slower satisfaction is in this JOMO where we're able to kind of put aside the FOMO, build that financial security and get the feelings associated with that over a longer period. And it's done really quietly and that's the problem. And she identifies that as a major issue. And that's why there is a big movement that started called the FIRE movement, Financial Independence Retire Early was a millennial movement, but there are now people of all generations that are joining in. And it's this idea of people celebrating missing out. So like people will post on social media, (laughs) all kinds of savings hacks and not spending or downsizing. And then 30,000 people light up in celebration. Sometimes it really is about finding your squad, your pod, where you can safely discuss these things and who can kind of quietly celebrate with you until we have a society that would celebrate openly right alongside you. It always helps to have a community. That's like the secret sauce (laughs) of financial security. It's the part where you not only have what you need, but you get to give generously I do love everything you had to say in your book that there is one thing that I do differently, at least mentally, or that you didn't cover. I know that you do this personally, but before saving or spending anything, we give 10%. And that's important to me because it's faithful to scripture. I want to have that integrity. It makes me joyful before saving or spending anything. That's what we do. It's also important to me because I love how it feels to know that our generosity impacts the people around me. We get to be rewarded by knowing that we're doing good for others. There are so many great charities out there. You know, there's your church home, there's your faith community, but there are also so many worthy causes. It's incredibly empowering to get that paycheck and think, great, this is more than enough. Now I get to impact the world around me. And God is giving me this opportunity now to share in a way that builds up our community. I know that when you're starting out, scripture teaches us to tithe, that's giving 10%. And that sounds huge to a lot of people. Personally, when I teach members of our community about this, I just say, you know, start where you can. Choose the percentage point. Think proportionally. If that's 1%, if it's 4%, if it's 6%, choose your starting point and then try to increase by 1% each year until you get to that tithe. And that tithe to me, that 10%, there's something about it. There's a conversion experience that is there for you because it's freedom. So I wholeheartedly believe that generosity is one of the secrets to joyful living and I also believe that this is how we're going to get to change the world together and make this world a better place. I have struggled as a financial planner where my place is to talk openly about generosity. Talking to you is an incredible challenge. As you know, in the book, I included the generosity, the 10% in with the story of the person that we used as the example, but I did not use it as part of the basic teaching in the book. I alluded to it one time of where it would go because I've always thought of it as a very personal decision. I've thought of myself as very, very personally generous 
and want to be increasingly so over time. And the struggle internally is, do I put that value system on other people? It's great to have this conversation. You know, I do sometimes see generosity where people are donating borrowed dollars. So people very much in heavy debt who Mm -hmm. are giving and, you know, giving can be a status symbol as well that we have to also be aware Mm -hmm. of the ego hits by it. It can also become a form of spending. I do believe people have to get their financial houses in order so that they can give what they have available to give as well. I agree with you that giving is a personal matter. The spiritual good that comes from generosity needs to find its source in our own willingness to give and not doing it because we feel beholden to in some way. But if we never talk about it, if we never talk about how great it is to give (laughs) and why it's so powerful to the world when we do so, if we never talk about it, then people don't do it and we don't receive that good and that joy. The proportionality, talking about it in proportionality, I think is really important because again, what you're doing is you're saying, here are my values. Yes. Here is my statement of Mm -hmm. that value, whether it's 10% or whatever it is or more that people might choose. I think that that's how we should all be thinking about it and could become a more generous society. So I get the feeling that people do have pretty open conversations about giving. Do you think that it's not? I think that people are timid about talking about giving because my experience, there's a funny saying around my church, no one says no to Mary. Well, it's not true. (laughs) When I ask them to talk about giving, (laughs) many people say no because they consider it to be so personal. Or maybe they're not giving in a way that makes them feel satisfied. So they don't feel like they can be the witness. They don't want to be perceived as putting pressure on others. It can be a hurdle. So it's a challenge to talk about our money in general. And it's a challenge to even talk about giving. But there's so much good that we can do through our generosity. It's worthwhile. And it certainly is worth your well-being to get your financial house in order, however hard that may be. It's possible. It is. In your spare time, I know that you have a lot of that, I'm sure. I want you to write us another book, Sarah Catherine. I'd love to hear what you might have to teach us about how we can, ordinary people, faithfully change the world with our giving while also building those responsible level of savings. I love it. <laughs> Whenever I, you I get mean, around I'm to not it. Kidding. I love those questions where you don't have a good immediate answer because those are the ones that need to be explored. For our listeners, if you have a young woman in your life, I absolutely recommend that you give them a copy of Sarah Catherine's book. I've already passed mine on with instructions oh. to pass it on after she's done with it. I have young men in my household and they might not be as interested in about how to save for the bridesmaids dresses <laughs> and things. But some of those but, bachelor's parties are I know. too. <laughs> so, so we're going to have to teach them some things about that. I will also say for our listeners, if you are interested, if you're in need of some assistance from a wonderful financial planner, you can find Sarah Catherine at Aptus Financial here in Rock. 
I believe that our joy is complete for today. Sarah, <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Me. And if anyone's gotten here, you have definitely taken your financial medicine for the year. So congratulations. <laughs> but this really has been a huge honor. I mean, for you to have read the book and been willing to share your story and then allowing me to be on this podcast. It's just a dream. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's just amazing. Thanks to you and thanks to everyone for listening today. As always, you are invited to send in your questions or comments or suggestions for conversations that you would like to hear in the future. And please do listen again next time. And remember that RJOY is not complete without you. This is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Music